0: Um, anointing, we're not going to spend a lot of time on. I'll, I'll, we will look at James again, chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. I do want to um, point out Mark 6, 7 to 13. Mark 6, 7 to 13, and Luke ten one to 9. So James, chapter 5, beginning at uh, verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. I, I really do believe, and I'm going to admit openly, that I, I, ch- I still don't do it enough. I, I think the prayer, the prayer, I think the answer to just about everything, if not everything, to anxiety, to struggles with depression, to bondages, to temptation, to fear, to decision, is really about a lot of time in prayer. I I really think that we, in general, as North Americans, Christians, do not spend uh, much time uh, in prayer, in prayer, in comparison uh, to to other places. In other places, you know, that's what the family does in the evening. They get together, they sing hymns, they pray together, they pray for one another. I mean, so... Anyway, I just wanted, while that was on my heart, to talk about that. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Well, that doesn't apply to anyone here, so we can skip that verse. No, okay. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders. And we already said elder here in the Greek is the word presbyterous. It means the presbyters, what we'd call priests. This doesn't mean like the old people in the church, okay? Or the long-standing members, okay? Um, The elders of the church, and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing him with oil. See how it's sacramental? It's not just let us pray spiritually in our heart for Jordan, right? It's about... Gathering the community, it's about calling in the clergy, it's about laying on of hands, it's about anointing and prayer. Okay, um, it's sacramental, where the out, the outward invisible sign becomes the instrument of conveying um, the the uh, the spiritual uh, and invisible power of God and his and his grace. Okay, Um, the ultimate sacrament being Jesus himself. Um, And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, this says right here that, you know, if you're sick... You go and you get anointed and you should be healed, okay? Now, obviously, if we had a lot of time, we could talk about the Lord's will and so forth and so on, but there's a lot more here going on. First of all, there's a sacramental context here, okay? Uh, Which is all sacramental theology is related to the incarnation, that God, rather than working in opposition to the created order, works through the created order. The ultimate example being Jesus himself, where God's presence, God's very being, his love, his healing, his mercy, his truth, his goodness, his beauty, right, is uh, made known in the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our our Lord. Okay, so first there's there's that context, there's the sacramental context, Secondly, there's the context of the Ecclesia, the church, right? This is doing this within the community and among the community, okay? Now, you know, you can be anointed anywhere. I keep oil stock in my, I hope I have it because I'm about to make the point, I do, uh, with me all the time. I carry it wherever I go, usually uh, even when I'm on vacation, unless I am wearing shorts that don't have pockets, right? Um... uh, but otherwise, I, I usually have it on. Um, that comes from one bishop. I had Bishop Ackerman who said, always carry your oil stock with you, always. Uh, he was so high church, he couldn't say that about the Blessed Sacrament because he was so high church, he believed that you shouldn't converse when you had the sacrament on you. So he, he, he wouldn't say that. But, um, um, but he would say the, the other uh, always carry that uh, on you. So the first context is that this is sacramental. It's tied to the incarnation. It's ecclesial. That is, it's within the body of Christ um, that they are, are gathering. Um, and if you're sick, call for the clergy of the church, the elders, the, presbyter, the presbyters of the church, and let them pray over him. So within the context of the church, For them to pray. Uh, Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So you're being anointed with oil. That's so sacramental. The idea that God is going to convey his power through the created order, not in opposition to it. The physical and the spiritual go together. Everything you do, spiritual, has an impact on your physical being. And everything you do physically has an impact on your spiritual being. Okay, um, a, a very bold uh, way of saying this is I, I've had people come to me for counseling who have joined themselves to another in sexual relations outside of marriage or sadly in an adulterous affair and and actually things that they had never spiritually struggled with, but the person they joined themselves to did, right? They were starting to struggle with. And I, I'm not trying to be funny, but it, but it, it's almost like a spiritual venereal disease. The fact is, is when you join yourself physically, you are also joining yourself spiritually with that person, okay? Um, and so... Um, But to put it in a happier context, when you are baptized, something physical is happening to you, but simultaneously something spiritual is happening to you. Okay? Uh, uh, Okay. Uh, And the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. So remember, it's done in the name of the Lord and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven therefore confess your sins so this is part of it too that one must come seeking the lord having turned from sin having confessed their sin having asked for forgiveness from sin not coming in you know oh i see these things all the time on facebook you know love me as my as i am or bug off in my life and you know and you know look God does love you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Okay. And, and and the fact is, is that, you know, which one of us for our own children or spouse would say, well, I'm just going to accept you as you are. And if I try to change you, there's something evil about that. Well, that's kind of the notion in in our world today. Um, I read a thing on Facebook the other day. This is a paraphrase. Um... I shouldn't have to apologize for being who I am. You should apologize to me for trying to change me. Really? So, I mean, if, so I I hope that Christine's relationship with me is, is changing, has changed and is changing, hopefully in a good way, something about me. I hope I'm growing as a person. We're not Popeye, I am who I am. I mean, come on, right? We're supposed to be growing and maturing. And, and uh, um, uh, well, the growing and maturing. I'll go with that. That sounds good. Growing and maturing. Uh, now, obviously, I'm sure people listening will say, well, but, you know, this can be applied here in a negative way. And I know. But what I'm saying is, is that we are supposed to encourage one another. Um, to grow and to mature in, in the Lord. Uh, and it's not just a matter of, you know, love me as I am or leave me, you, you, you know, that type of thing. You know, um, The Lord does love us as we are. Can you imagine a parent um, saying to, uh, um, I don't know, I'll just throw out a random number, a six-year-old or an eight-year-old, uh, saying to them, look, I love you just the way you are, so I'm not going to try to change you. I'm not going to. So of course God wants to change us. We're His children. He wants us to grow and to mature and to move on from some attitudes, right? And leave them behind. He doesn't bless our chains. He wants to set us free from our chains. Okay. Um, so we are to confess our sins. We are to pray for one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So I mean there's a whole there's a whole thing right there. Um the prayer of a righteous man has great power uh in its effects. Um sometimes I really think about that and I say, uh oh. I don't know how righteous I am. So what what but then I remember, oh wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not righteous, but Jesus is. Right. So I say, Lord, help me to turn from my sin. I mean, before we're anointing anyone, we should be doing all this, too. Just like I said, you should fast and pray before you baptize and the person to be baptized should be fasting and praying. I think perhaps those to being anointed should fast and pray and those to anoint should fast and pray. Now that can't always happen. Sometimes you're in the mass, you're overcome by somebody, "I need prayer." I mean that's okay. we're not creating laws here, but we are we are talking about guidelines, spiritual guidelines. Okay. Um, let's just look quickly at one of those other two that I, I mentioned. Let's look at Mark six, seven to thirteen, Mark six, seven to thirteen. And Jesus called to him the twelve, so these are the twelve apostles. Remember, all apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles, okay? And Jesus called to him the twelve and began to send them out two by two. This is something I I believe in more and more, by the way, is that ministry should be done in twos um, unless a priest is hearing confession, and and, and and not a not because thank you, Steve and Susie, but not, and not, and not because of all the laws. I mean, that's important too. You, you got to be careful about you know accusation and so forth. But I really think like if you're going out on a prayer walk to go out in twos, Jesus knows what He's doing here, because remember when we are gathered or doing something in His name, we are the church. He's present in a special way in a way that's unique from how he's present when we're by ourselves, We embolden one another, too, to do things we wouldn't normally do when we're with with, um, another. But I also think there's strength. Like in visiting the sick, I believe everyone should go in twos. To be in twos. Okay, anyway. Sent them out in twos and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Interesting, that whole idea of shepherd, by the way. A staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on tunics. Does anyone know what all that means? First of all, there's some, there's some spiritual things to it. Don't bog yourself down. You, you, you know, go with speed into the world to proclaim, not, you know, having all this, you, you know, don't get so, you know, worried about your supply, is it? But, but also, this is a short-term missionary trip. That, that's what this is, right? He, this, in this particular case, he's not saying, Thomas, go to India, right? He's saying, look, I'm sending you out on a short-term mission trip, Okay. Where you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place will not receive you, and then they refuse to hear you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet for a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that men should repent. What's that mean to repent? To turn from sin and to turn one's heart to the Lord. That they should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. See the sacramental context? They didn't just pray. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's the spiritual being conveyed through the created order, which is incarnational. Incarnational. We see it with the, the, the bronze serpent in the Old Testament, the staff of Moses. We see it with the handkerchiefs of Paul. We see it with the laying on of hands for ordination and healing. We see it with oil for healing. We see it with bread and wine for communion. We see it with water for baptism, uh, etc. Any questions before we move on from the anointing? I'd really love if, if people said, you know what? I, well, they should be doing this for communion, but they say, you know what? Health permitting... I'm going to fast from midnight on Saturday night on, or I'm going to fast from the time I wake up, or I'm going to fast just because of health permitting, I, I need a little something, so I'm just going to eat a little something, or I'm going to fast even if, it depends where the heart is, right? An hour beforehand, you know, before receiving. But in in some preparation uh, of denying oneself physically in order to look uh, for the spiritual things, and the hunger and thirst uh, for for them for them, um, but can you imagine coming and uh, receive the first thing you eat and drink is God's word and his body and his blood, and then to be anointed um, all in a state of fasting and having prayed and having uh, this is why I mean I know people say, "Well, you know we're not going to become Roman Catholics around here or like Eastern Orthodox?" But wouldn't it be great if priests had to show up here at 7 o'clock uh, in the morning to hear confessions because people at least once a month wanted to confess before um, uh, uh, receiving communion and the body and blood of Jesus or uh, wanted to confess before being anointed or, or so forth and, and, and so on, you know? Uh, Wouldn't that that be great? Or if just people who came who were having a particular struggle with with something and they needed to to bring it to the Lord, you know, uh, on on that day, Karen? Oh, well, this is changing the topic, I'm sorry. So it says, "And they cast out many demons." Mm Mm-hmm. I mean I, I think a little bit I I think that when people are released from sin that there is a release of the grip or hold that demons the the demonic has on on people um the shame that can be such a bondage that people carry from their sin um or for other things but I I also think it, you know that you know there's definitely things that um um, I know after confessions and anointings, there's a, a prayer that I say: "Of Lord, cleanse me, so that nothing may be transferred to me, or anyone I love, or anyone that I'm spiritually connected to. Um, because, you know, I may, I may not love them all the time. So I say, anyone I'm spiritually connected to. Um, the fact is, is that that world is very real, um, although we don't talk about it. But yeah, when a person is released from sin." The, the kingdom of darkness is being cast out of them. And so and these demons are definitely going somewhere. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking of that bond you know, that idea of bonded bonds being broken. hmm Right, yes, yes. No. If you were bonded okay. with a demon somehow that it, they were casting those they were breaking that relationship. Yes, right, right. With with those with those demons. Absolutely. Absolutely. A what? A oh, big yeah, handy. Yeah. Stand- oh, a, p- I see a pig. Oh, okay. I a pig. Okay. I I, I okay. you have to live Ah, to... oh, that's right. I yeah. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if this is from the Father's or my, my uh, own uh, interpretation or what. So I'm going to give that caveat that it might be my own. But a lot of people struggle like, so why was Jesus a little soft with the demons? You, you know, Because they're like, oh, no, 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 don't, don't send us like to hell, hell. It's like way before time. We're, we're, we're supposed to get to the end of time before we go to Gehenna. Right? So, you know, send us into the pigs. And it seems like Jesus, you know, is like, well, all right, I, you know, I'm feeling nice today. Well, no, to, to demons? I mean, you know. and But I, maybe I got this from one of the early church. You know how you read something and then you forget you read it and it's just kind of there in your mind and you say, I got this great idea, right? And here it is. Um, but I always thought that idea, first of all, the pigs were seen to be uh, unclean. In, in, to, to the Jews, right? So he casts them into them. But what do they do? Yeah, they run down on a cliff and into a lake and drown. And of course, at the end of time in Gehenna, they'll be cast, it says Hades and all the apostate angels and all will be cast into the lake of fire. So I think those particular demons were cast into mm. Gehenna. Gehenna. I don't. Just my theory. I always felt bad for the guys whose they were. Absolutely. Well, he. Gee, uh, I, I. I mean, I don't have time to explain this, and I really don't know the answer. But he wiped out their living. Oh the yeah, system. they're like, get out of here. <laughs> We can't we can't take any more of this. Obviously you have a power but you need to go because yeah. Uh you're not helping us here. Yeah. Okay. uh So let's um so let's talk uh now about um ordination. We looked at um John uh 20 um 19 to to 23 where we yeah. Luke 10, 1-9. Luke 10, 1-9. John 20, um, 19 and following. So when Jesus comes to them and he breathes upon them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And this was understood by the earliest church and by the church fathers and incorporated into the ancient rites of ordination. That this, this was the ordination uh, here and the ministry of reconciliation uh, was given. Okay, now we turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter six, verse beginning at verse one. Acts of the Apostles, chapter six, beginning at verse one. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing. The Hellenists, those are Greeks who had come to the faith, okay, often Greeks who had first converted to Judaism and then converted to Christ, okay, murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So, okay, so the church was already trying to reach out to the people who were in need, okay, Uh, in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the body of the disciples. So again, you can see that there is a distinction between the twelve and the rest of the church. All apostles are disciples. Not all disciples are apostles. And said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I actually quoted that once in one church I was in where it was after a, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, the pancake supper. And, you know, and, And all that, and I said, well, you know, I I have to go and prepare my sermon for tomorrow's daily Mass. And, you know, it's not right that I should have to give that up to serve. It didn't go over quite as well as it did here for the Apostles in chapter 6. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint, and that Greek word there really, to appoint, to set apart, okay, um, to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Um, you know, in many ways, I also think that, that clergy would do their church family a much greater service if they spent themselves several hours a day in prayer and spiritual reading and scriptural reading uh, and, and, and that kind of stuff. And it, part of that argument comes from, from here. Um, anyway, read the, uh, the Country Parson by George Herbert uh, where he makes a similar idea that really clergy should be uh, for the protection of their own church family but also themselves and their ministry. Hours a day. In, in prayer, and then the whole afternoon in and visiting, and, and that kind of thing. But anyway. And what they said pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor? Nicanor? No. Nicanor? Nicanor, probably. Okay, we'll go with that. Uh, and Timon, and Parm, Parmenas, and Nicolaeus, Nicola, Nic, who, by the way, I know from church history, became a big-time heretic later and is referred to in Revelation, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands upon them. And the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests, that is the Jewish priests, were obedient to the faith. It would be nice if the Christian priests were obedient to the faith too. Um, Here we see, according to the early church fathers, the first ordination of whom? Deacons. Deacons. Okay. And while there are a couple of the deacons here who go off and have a particular gift for preaching, that is Philip, who goes to Samaria, and Stephen, who was such a good preacher, it got him killed, Okay, um, that preaching here was not innate to the diaconate, but rather servant ministry was for the diaconate. So, for example, while they are ordained, they are set apart and receive the laying on of hands, just as Jesus, he breathed the Holy Spirit uh, into the apostles. Now the apostles are setting apart and laying hands and ordaining these deacons. It would be the deacons, for example, who would um, lead prayer walks, right? go among the people, just find the needs of the people. It would be the deacons who would lead our Father's table, right? Uh, that type of, of, of ministry, right? Uh, it would be... Um, so that, that was the idea that it was the deacons who went among um, the needy, okay? Where the priests and the bishops were the ones who did the teaching, the preaching, and celebrated the sacraments, okay? Okay? The deacons were, in a sense, the platoon leaders who would go out among the people and lead the people in the world, okay? Um, um, but they're ordained here, you can see, by the laying on of hands. By whom? The Apostles. So we see that Jesus gives that particular gift of ordination to the apostles through the, His breath and the giving of the Holy Spirit for the ministry of the reconciliation. Here they lay hands upon seven men here that are going to go out and be deacons uh, in uh, in the church, in the church. Any reason for seven for the number seven? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so it could be yeah, it could be it could be symbolic of this ministry being established here, the diaconate and it being the fullness of church order now because now we have apostles, bishop, priests, and when the apostles died, bishops will move into that place of, of the apostles and priests, and now you have the ordination of the deacons. So it could re- it could also represent deacons for all time. You know that this ministry shall continue until the end of time in the second coming of Christ. You know it could mean that. It could be that they can only find seven people. <laughs> we found six. Find another. Yes. All right. Um, but yeah, I I would think it has to do with the idea that the completion of the threefold ministry and the complete and really representing all deacons of all time in the church, that this is a permanent order within the church of Christ. That's what I, 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 I would think, okay? Um, but by each doing their ministry, the church is able to grow, right? The church is able to grow because each was doing what God called them to do. Um, the, the apostles here are focusing on prayer, and on the Word of God, and on preaching and teaching. And we know from elsewhere, in celebrating the sacraments, right? And here you have the deacons going out among the poor, and the needy, and the sick. This is why, historically, deacons read the prayers of the people. A lot of people say, you should be a lay person who reads the prayers of the people. After all, they're called the prayers of the people. It's a misunderstanding of, of the name. It, the deacon would bring to, the, to God and the church the prayers of the people because they were the ones out among the people. So they were conveying to God and to the priests of the church the needs of the people. And so it was the deacons who would lead the prayers of the people in the church. Sadly, um, not only did the diaconate for several centuries just become a stepping stone to priests and the vocational diaconate was lost. But even now when it's restored, we're trying to restore it to what it should be. And so many bishops are still licensing lay people to do the ministry of the deacons, uh, which is um, a, a biblical and Catholic ministry um, that I believe there are several laity who are called to be deacons who will never fulfill that calling because they're doing it as lay people. And, and really, uh, people will say, oh, well, you know, you have all these deacons, and now you've taken away from the laity. Well, I, I'm going to say something probably not too popular. I think the laity, with the support of bishops, by the way, had taken away the ministry of the deacons, actually. And I, I for one, think it's very important that it be restored and properly understood, and properly understood. Because this is a ministry that's clearly biblical and also uh, Catholic as well, meaning patristic, uh, received by the whole church east and west. It's it's not something we can get rid of because we don't like it anymore. I mean, it's clearly grounded in the scriptures in the patristic uh, church. Now let's turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, 1 to 4. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, many and a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. See how how much prayer and fasting was just given in the life of the early church. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart, which is what ordination is, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, and so we see that there. Now let's, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Which is right before 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4 beginning at verse 12. Now here's Paul speaking to one of his spiritual sons, Timothy, okay, um, whom he ordained and disciple, discipled and ordained. And uh, let's start at verse uh, eleven. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise your youth. I used to love this because uh, I was ordained. As a young person, and in some ways, never had the blessing of um, being a curate, was sent immediately, even as a deacon, to be in charge of a, of a parish. And I was always young, and people were, oh, you know, I got children, and I got dogs and cats that are older than you. And, uh, you, you know, and I, I used to quote this all the time it's not the age of the person, it's the anointing of the uh, person. I used to love, love this. Now it's becoming less and less relevant as a passage. But anyway, um, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers, but but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love, faith in faith, in purity. Till I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture. Isn't that cool? Right there, the public reading. It's not just about going home and reading the Bible in in your house, which, by the way, back then almost no one could do, um, and still in many parts of the world. But that the, the the Scriptures would be read, as it was in Judaism, in the gathering of the covenanted community, and and there's a, there's a power and presence of God through the proclaimed Word. Um, that is distinct from just reading the Bible at home. Not that that's a bad thing at all. Okay. Um, To the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophetic utterance when the council of elders... Now the Greek word there is uh, the episkopos and presbyteros. Okay, in other words, you have the apostles. So at this point, bishops and priests are almost indistinguishable. Bishops were really kind of the the head priest in an area. Okay, because you had the threefold ministry was apostles, bishop priests, and deacons. And then with the death of the apostles, you have bishops, priests, and deacons. Okay but uh, through the council of elders who laid their hands upon you. Practice these duties. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Hold to that, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And your hearers. So now let's uh, turn to 2 Timothy 1. Well, let's go to 1 Timothy 3 for a second. Go back to chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. This is a a long one, okay? Um, The saying is sure. So this is Paul writing to Timothy. The the saying is sure. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. So if, if God has placed that desire in your heart, and you are responding to that call, you're desiring something that's noble. Why? Because you're really all that? No, because the office is noble. Right? The office. We will hear tomorrow in the gospel that Jesus is the bishop and, and guardian of our souls. Right? Okay. Noble task. Now, a bishop must be above reproach what does that mean, above reproach? Right, must be must be a righteous person. Now, some would argue with me on this. I would say being a righteous person, being above reproach, means that you either are walking in the Lord, or if you have blown it, you have repented and have been cleansed in the blood of Jesus and restored. Okay, but some would say, no, if a bishop really blows it, that he he should be removed, or if someone has really blown it in the past, they should not be uh, a bishop. And I say, right, you mean like Paul, who was a murderer, right? And, you know, they have good arguments back, which I don't have time to get into, Uh, but in their argument would be, well, that was before his baptism, and so it it gets problematic. But I, I would still say being above reproach means rather walking in the Word or you're, you're in the midst of returning to the word through serious repentance, okay? But he must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, again, this is, oh my goodness, this is a, a point of controversy in interpretation. First of all, <laughs> uh, you might want to point out uh, that bishops in the early church, very clear here, that they could be married, okay? Um, in Rome, of course, Bishops and priests cannot be married, period. Deacons can be married if they're married before they're ordained. And if uh, their wife dies, they cannot remarry. In the Eastern Orthodoxy, um, uh, priests and deacons can marry if they're married before they're ordained. So it's not true that an Orthodox priest can marry. An Orthodox married man can become a priest, same with the deacon. But if their wife dies, they cannot be remarried if they want to continue in the ministry. To me, that while they have the right and the authority to put a disciplinary canon on, that is definitely a tradition of man that could be changed. But they say that their pr- bishops cannot be married. Um, they must be chosen among the celibates. Okay, so anyway, um, here clearly bishops could be married. Here's the argument that that goes on. Does this mean that they've only had one wife? So if they div- were divorced and remarried, that they cannot be a bishop? Some argue clearly that that's the interpretation. Others argue, no, 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 has nothing to do with that, because remember, Paul only deals with problems, and it's not like there was this terrible problem with bishops divorcing their wives and being remarried, because back then, probably none of them got divorced and remarried, period, okay? That's why I find that first argument very weak, and Isaac, you may have a challenge to that in a second, but, um, but I, I find it very weak to say that this is referring to divorced men, that they should not become bishops, Okay um I find that very weak because I don't think any bishops were probably divorced and remarried this early in the church uh church's history and life um what I think this is referring to is one wife at a time that this is about some who were pagans before who had more than one wife and they they come in and and you know th- this meant that look no 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 they cannot have one wife but 13 Women with whom they're friendly, concubines, right? Because uh, they were often required to care for them. Still, even though when they came to Christ and were baptized, one was surely chosen as the wife. They would often care, and that was a lot of responsibility. So I, you know, it's my interpretation. This is not talking about divorce and remarriage. But there's a lot of evangelicals who say this is clearly about divorce and remarriage. Never even crossed my mind. That's yeah. Yeah, one at a time, and it, I've always thought it strange that if if uh, um, a man had suffered, let's say, with uh, an adulterous wife without repentance, and finally was you know um, the person leaves them, they've suffered all that time, and they're healed. They find a wonderful wife. That the church then continues to punish them for that. And that, you know, if they feel called to be a bishop. But many do interpret that. Uh, Isaac? The death, the death of a wife. Right. That, that, I'm sorry. That's an excellent point. Um, that means, therefore, no more. You know? And I mean... You know that sounds great but what if you're a priest in the Eastern Orthodox Church and you you, you find yourself a wife and you're like the day before your ordination you're like praise god <laughs> right cuz you got to be married before you're ordained and you get married and, and you have a few kids and you're now 29 years old and sadly your wife dies of cancer and you have the three kids and you know and you know and i i mean to me it's it's putting a yoke on men that scripture does not put On, on them. But anyway, that's a a, a whole other topic. But now, a bishop must be above reproach. So living a godly life, the husband of of one wife. We talked about that. Temperate. I do think that does uh, tend to. disqualify all men from the episcopacy. But anyway, uh, along with the next one, sensible, right? Uh, our, our bishops uh, accepted to that, of course. They are sensible in case they're listening. Uh, dignified, hospitable, an apt teacher, because teaching is so innate to the office of bishop. Okay? Uh, no drunkard. Oh, by the way, that's what I meant by the joke. I took temperate up above as meaning that, and that temperance, and I, so I got confused there. So I actually meant the joke to apply there. But anyway, um, no drunkard, <laughs> not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and no lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. Does submissive mean slavish? No. This is a godly submission, okay? A godly submission. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. So if you're going to be a bishop, now this is often applied by Protestants, however, to apply to um, uh, any person, lay person, ordained person, anyone, being in the position of any authority. I I think it's referring here to the office of bishop, but you'll go into many who um, will become members of the body of Christ and will not be able to be on like the council of elders or the council of deacons in Protestant churches or whatever until they've been in there for for a while. Not necessarily a bad thing to hold off, but um, anyway. or. Well, and you know what? That's what I've gone. That's what I've always gone by. That when a person has given their life to Christ and they're baptized, chrismated, receiving communion, they're in the church. They are as full a member as I am, and therefore they can do that if God calls them. And there's examples from history, like Ambrose. You know, the Holy Spirit revealed to the crowd. He was baptized, made a deacon, made a priest, and made a bishop of Milan. Um, you, you know, boom, 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 which probably does go against what's being said here, by the way. But, um, but anyway, um, I think you can make a strong argument um, either way. And, uh, However, I, I've got to say that in, in practice, theologically, I lean to what you just said, that if a person's a full member, they're a full member. But in practice, I, I've often seen that not work out well, too. So. Actually, though, I was going to say, I actually have a problem with that, what I just said. Okay. So, uh, for just a very quick example, there's a, uh, a church where the intern pastor who led all of the um, youth, not youth, but college and career type ministries and stuff, had only been converted for like a year or something, and yet he was the authority and everybody looked to him for like scriptural interpretation and stuff. And, and yeah. Right. Yeah, I think I think in practice it can be problematic. Theologically, I tend to say, it, you, you know, it's just like, you know, there's a difference between the day before you're married and the day you're married. You, you know, you don't have to have a six month probation. You, you, you know, but on the other hand, in practice, it, it doesn't often work out. So you're right. Wasn't it like that with Thomas Beckett, though? It was like that with Thomas I mean, Beckett. He was a deacon. He was a de- pretty much given it up. I, oh, giving it up. I love the line where he says, "Oh, that's right, my king. I'd forgotten I was a deacon. And then he became priest and archbishop of Canterbury. Of Canterbury. Yeah. Right. And then God changed his heart. Boom. And, and it got him killed. But, but yeah. But they're not Protestants, so it's okay. Yeah, well, that's true. This, this mostly probably applies to that, yeah. Um, okay, so... Where were we? Um, Must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, or he may fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be serious. (laughs) That's why I had a hard time as a deacon. You see, I had to be serious. It was a, it was a tough 18 months, man. I, I, as soon as he said, receive the spirit for the office and work of a priest, I stood up and I said, All right, did you hear about the guy who... All right, so deacons likewise must be serious, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I, oh, I have greedy for gain. Okay, well, there you go. All right, they, um, and they must be able to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, which means they, they can't go into being a deacon and say, you know what, I really struggle with whether the Lord rose from the dead, <laughs> you know? Okay, and let them also be tested first. Then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. The women, likewise, must be serious. Now, here is a a dispute. Some uh, uh, interpreters say that this is, note when it's talking about bishops, it's men. When it's talking about deacons here, some believe that this refers to, it's talking about the man deacons, now it's talking about the women deacons. Others interpret this as a reference to the deacons' wives. Um, I don't know why the bishops' wives don't need their own little paragraph, but uh, anyway, I've seen translations that actually even just say wives of deacons. Wives of deacons, right? But that—that's a paraphrase, you know. The you know, and uh, I really think it is a reference to women deacons. I really do, and not to the wives of, of the deacons. But. Um, the women, meaning the women deacons, likewise must be serious, no slanders, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, and let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So why that other line about one wife and not one one husband. Again, I think this goes back that it has nothing to do with divorce and remarriage. If these are women deacons in those cultures, they wouldn't have come from a culture where they had many husbands, but the men would have had many wives, possibly. So, do you, do you, you know, so I, you know, that's why I think a it's referring to women deacons, uh, and and not you, you know because it doesn't give a paragraph for the the bishops' wives, right? Um they can do whatever they want, right <laughs> they, i'm not temperate, you know, I had to be when I was married to a deacon, but he's a bishop now, right um <laughs> drink up <laughs> right, so anyway, um <laughs> we yeah, well, yeah, true, right there, okay, let me see. Uh, through 16, so I keep going, I guess. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Great indeed, we we confess, is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh. That is, God came in the flesh. Vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's actually a little creed there, by the way, uh, and so uh, important. Now let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Um, I'm not going to read chapter 5 because then I get Eunice's name mixed up when I give her communion. So I'm just going to skip over verse 5 and go to 6. Hence I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Okay? So he's saying, look, keep that. What you have received through the apostolic succession keep going. Oh, by the way, it's so important we did skip here. The whole thing in the Acts of the Apostles where Judas sadly takes his life and it says, "Let another take his office." Right? And it makes it very clear there that not all apostles, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. They said, "We must get back to the number 12 that was very important in the beginning so that the church was understood to be the the new Israel," right? Um, So let another take his office. In the King James, it actually says, let another take his episcopate. Let another take his bishopric, it says, rather. His bishopric. Took your bishop. Okay. Um, uh, So let another take... And then they choose from among the men, and I do want to point out there that um, there were many, many people there, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene and others, but they chose among the men for those to take the bishopric, okay, the office of, of bishop um, or apostle there. Um, and so uh, you see the importance of the succession, um, and you see the laying on of hands, the succession with the laying on the hands of the deacons, um, of others, of Timothy, we'll see it of Titus, okay. So, um, and we see it here again with Timothy. Now go to uh, Titus 1 7 to 9. Titus 7 to 9. For a bishop, as God's steward, must be blameless. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of goodness, master of himself, upright, holy, and self-controlled. He must hold firm to the sure word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to confute those who contradict it. I'm going to go on for a second there in verse 10. For there are many insubordinate men. There's that insubordination. Okay, empty talkers and deceivers, especially the circumcision party, those who were Jews who had converted to Christ, who were requiring Gentiles to first receive um, circumcision in the, in the law, the particular law of the Jews before they could accept Jesus. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for base gain what they have no right to teach. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, and goes on and on and on, okay? Um, So, uh, uh, very important there. Um, And I'm just going to end, uh, we are a little bit over, but I'm just going to end with, um, you know, I am going to say, unless I don't remember um, the, the other teachings, I almost wish I had the guts to do a spiritual discipline, On the church family, and tell everyone in the next six months that they have to listen to this particular. Not that we covered all. We didn't cover the Trinity. We didn't cover the Incarnation necessarily. We didn't. But the things that we covered, I think, are just so important for our understanding of authority and the ministry of the church and the sacramental life of the church and how God works in the church and. The idea of prayer and fasting and being within the body of Christ, the fellowship, and and I really wish every every person would would listen to to this. Um, anyway, I'm going to conclude with this is the preface. Um, when it comes to the apostolic succession, um, you, you know there are some uh, who who have said, who in in Anglicanism, uh, well it's not clear in the scripture, it doesn't say anywhere, a bishop, priest, and deacon must be ordained by a bishop who was ordained by a bishop going back to the apostles who received the breath of the Holy Spirit uh, on the eve of the day of the resurrection. Ah, It doesn't say that anywhere. Okay, it also doesn't say... Um, uh, that our belief in the Holy Trinity is to be defined as follows, or our belief in the Incarnate Lord is defined as follows, or the 27 books or the New Testament is exactly as follows, okay? But it's there. And this is the faith and order of the church received by the earliest church. Now, some have also argued, well, but that clear definition, Father Michael, you, you know, you find allusions to it in the earliest writings of the fathers. I mean, the earliest fathers. But this idea of the succession and it being important doesn't come up till later. And I say, neither does arguments over the canon, nor did the Nicene Creed till 325. In other words, things didn't come up as issues until they were brought up as issues, right? Until they had to be addressed But you see it in the scripture. You see it in the writings of the earliest church. And then you see it emerge clearly within the first five centuries. Now, at the time of any reformation, there's going to be times when they go a little too far in their reformation and reforming. Or there's things that they put into practice for a time and it, it needs to be pulled back a little bit, not working so well, right? And that's true with any uh, t- uh, period of the Reformation. There are some uh, in particular, and I respect them and love them, uh, low church Anglicans who will argue well look at the time of the English Reformation, there was a time when some Protestant ministers from the continent, because remember the Continental Reformation, what is called the Protestant Reformation and the English Reformation, are related but distinct. Okay? Um, And there are some who were um, not in the apostolic succession who did come over to England and were allowed for a time to preside at the Eucharist. And I say, absolutely true. But because that practice started to happen, immediately there was a response that said, this practice is needs to be addressed because we in our Reformation are trying to uphold the faith and order of the undivided Catholic Church under the authority of Scripture. And this is not something that has ever been received as being biblical or the faith practice or order of the undivided church and so it had to be addressed and it was considered an anomaly and this is what is this is from the 1662 prayer book which is considered the the norm of of the uh, of the practice liturgically this is the preface to the ordinal which is part of the anglican formularies and it says It is evident unto all men, and I'm sure it would be evident to some women as well. It is evident, um, um, for those who can't see, the women in the room are smiling. No, one was not, actually. Okay, so, uh, it is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and the ancient authors. What does that mean, the ancient authors? The early fathers, right. This is classical, classic uh, Anglican theology. We're going to look at something, and we're going to look at it first from the Scriptures and then the early church fathers. So it is evident unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors, that is the fathers, that from the apostles' time, so from the age of the apostolic church, from the beginning, from the inception of the church, Okay, from the apostles' time, there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church bishops, priests, deacons. Now, while I do believe that it's perfectly okay to call the order of priests presbyters, I do, because that's probably a more legitimate rendering of the Greek, presbyteros. Okay. Um, I do also want to point out on the other side, for those who tell me that we should not call them priests, um, that the uh, ordinal here, preface to the ordinal, does, okay? But, so those who read scripture in the early church will understand clearly that from the inception of the church, from the time of the apostles, there have been three orders of ministry in the church, bishops, priests, and deacons, which offices were evermore had in such reverend estimation that no man might presume to execute any of them except he were first called, tried, examined, and known to have such qualities as are requisite for the same, and also by public prayer with imposition of hands, were approved and admitted thereunto by lawful authority. So it makes it very clear that not only do we believe that this is part of the apostolic faith and order that has come down to us from the time of the apostles, and that it's both biblical and patristic, but that no one has a right to exercise these ministries. Only those to whom have received the laying on of hands okay, um, within the life of the church. And therefore, to the intent that these orders may be continued... What orders? The orders of bishop, priest, and deacon going back to the apostolic age. So it's very clear there's no such thing technically as the Anglican ministry. Technically, there's no such animal as an Anglican deacon or an Anglican priest or an Anglican bishop because we have never claimed our own ministry. We have claimed the the ordained ministry, that of bishop, priest, and deacon, of the Catholic Church. We didn't create anything new but maintained the orders of, of the undivided church going back to the apostles' time, clearly grounded in scripture and in the writings of the early church fathers. So it says, there, And therefore, to the intent that these orders may be continued. So we're not creating a new ministry apart from the apostolic succession. We're maintaining what we have received, and it's our intent that it will continue beyond this. Um, Therefore, to the intent that these orders may be continued and reverently used and esteemed in the Church of England, no man shall be accounted or taken to be a lawful bishop, priest, or deacon in the Church of England or suffered to execute any of the said functions, so no one will be considered a bishop, priest, or deacon, or allowed to function as a bishop, priest, or deacon, except he be called, tried, examined, and admitted thereunto, according to the form hereafter following, or hath had Episcopal consecration or ordination. So, in other words, like the example of a Father Terence, who was ordained um, a priest in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, he may be received in... To the to this branch or fellowship of Christ's Holy Catholic Church and live out that ministry okay? But um, this is very clear um, that we're not claiming a new ministry. We're claiming that the threefold ministry of bishop priest and deacon is biblical and patristic, that it's what we've received and what we intend to continue and that those ordained outside of it are not allowed to, to live out that ministry unless they're ordained, or if they're already in Catholic orders, are received. Okay, Um, very, very clear uh, here.